This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyall. Our guest today is Ken Cousin. Ken is an author, consultant, and trainer specializing in Spring, Groovy, Grails, Java, and Hibernate. He's the instructor for three live online training courses that are being offered in September and October on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. They are Getting Started with Spring and Spring Boot, Functional Programming in Java 8, and Groovy Programming for Java Developers. You can find out the dates as well as a lot more information on these courses by going to safaribooksonline.com. Ken's latest book, Modern Java Recipes, Simple Solutions to Difficult Problems in Java 8 and 9, has just been published by O'Reilly, and he is also the presenter of a number of videos, including a series of videos on Grails 3. We'll talk with Ken about the functional programming-related changes in Java 8, what's coming up in the release of Java 9 later this month, and about happenings in Groovy, Grails, Gradle, and Spring and Spring Boot. Enjoy the show. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, good morning. How are you? Good. Well, let's start by talking about Java. You'll be presenting the live online training on functional programming in Java 8, both in September and October. And you've got the brand new book, Modern Java Recipes, which has just been published. So in Java 8, Project Lambda and the introduction of functional programming concepts was a pretty drastic change, to say the least. Is it accurate to say it was the biggest change in the history of the language? It certainly feels like it. I mean, the basic idioms of how you go about writing code have changed. Uh, when Java had the the syntactic sugar added in Java 1.5, you know, that felt like a big change, mm. but that's nothing compared to the new style and new structure that is recommended in Java 8 and 9, of course. I mean, Java 8's been out for a few years now, but the adoption, while it's been fairly widespread, has very much been along the lines of, you know, I think I'll just install the latest JDK and I'll let it backward compatibly compile all my code. Uh, now it's, I'm starting to see adoption in the industry where people are actually starting to use the new functional idioms inside of Java 8 and 9. Well, for developers working in Java, what are the advantages of, of these functional programming related changes? Uh, why don't we start with Lambda expressions? Well, the idea behind Lambdas is that now you can basically treat a method as though it was a first-class object. You know, it, it feels like you are wrapping a method inside an object and therefore passing it around as an argument or assigning it to a local variable or using it as a return type from another method. And this gives you access to all the normal functional programming idioms. Functional programming in general also favors things like immutability. And while Java's always had a bit of trouble with creating classes that produce only immutable objects, the approach is a good one. And this especially becomes helpful when you're doing anything involving concurrency. So personally, I think the biggest motivator for a lot of this stuff is the move to concurrent applications. The fact that you can now use a stream for your coding, and if this once the stream programming is working, immediately switch to a parallel stream, and you could experiment with concurrency. Now that's an optimization. Just because you go to something that's parallel doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a performance benefit, but they certainly have made it easy to do and easy to experiment with as an optimization after the fact. And well, you've, you've mentioned methods and streams. Is there anything more to say about method references or streams as far as how these will impact developers? Well, method references are simply a lambda referring to an existing method. So mm -hmm. there's nothing fundamentally different about a method reference than a lambda expression itself. It's just a, an easy way to use an existing method as opposed to writing a lambda of your own. The streaming code, though, when you start writing in this fashion, the 
code tends to be a little bit shorter and cleaner and easier to understand. There's more an emphasis on what you want to have happen as opposed to how in detail you want things to occur. This tends to make the code easier to read and maintain. Now, I, I don't want to go overboard on this because if you think about it, those are the exact same arguments that were made back in the day to, uh, to advertise object-oriented programming. Uh. But in this case, it really does seem to help. Once you get the feel for the functional idioms, it does tend to be very intuitive and very straightforward. Okay, Ken, I was also going to ask you about generics, but before going there, is there anything else that we should highlight regarding the functional programming? Well, it's uh, functional in the sense that you've got the streams and the lambdas and method references. I would say, however, that in addition to that, there have been many, many additions to the Java 8 API itself. So Java 8 and 9, of course, isn't simply the functional programming additions. There's also the addition of the java.time package for all of the, the Jota time changes and the, the uh, completable futures, which make it much easier to coordinate uh, asynchronous programming mechanisms and many, many, many other additions to the library itself. So it's there's a lot involved. And I, I thought that when we initially planned out the book, I thought it was going to be something relatively small and self-contained and easy. And of course, it just kept growing and growing as we kept encountering things that we thought, you know, somebody ought to have a good recipe for this and they ought to have a good recipe for that and on and on and on. Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly about generics in Java 8. Okay. Generics weren't new, but there were a lot of new things developers kind of suddenly needed to get up to speed on, right? Um, what do most developers get wrong about generics? Well, the thing about generics, as you say, it's not exactly new. It's been around since Java 1.5. And the thing is, though, is that most people simply learned about generics that you now you create a collection of a particular type, and therefore you're protected from accidentally adding the wrong type to a collection, which is pretty rare. But you also no longer have to cast to take them out. And most developers just stuck with that. They didn't really get into the details of wildcards and bounded you know, uh, wildcards with the upper and lower bounds. The thing that's changed in Java 8 is simply that the method signatures for a lot of these methods have become much more detailed, much more expanded. I mean, Java is still a statically typed language. That hasn't changed or anything. It's just that now uh, knowing the basics of generics isn't necessarily enough. You really need to get into what do these wildcards mean? How are they used in principle? I mean, for me, the way it basically worked was I was reading the API, just trying to understand the method declarations. And I kept getting confused because I was like most people and I really hadn't dug into it. So I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take like two days and I'm just going to dig through the tutorial information on generics and really understand this stuff. And a week and a half later, I'm still like going, do I, am I sure I really have this right? So eventually I figured the, the thing that would make life easier is I wound up putting an appendix in the book right. just on what I learned about Java generics. And again, the primary focus is, is really on how to understand the API so that you know what you're going to get and how you're going to get it. Well, let's do a little more looking ahead to Java 9. Sure. Scheduled to be released on September 21st, just about four weeks after we're recording this podcast. Let's talk about some of the new additions that are coming with Java 9. Uh, the most controversial is Project Jigsaw, the Java platform module system, which introduces modularization into the language. And the controversy surrounding that has been the cause of Java 9 being delayed. What, what's your take on this whole issue and how it will impact developers, either positively or negatively, in your opinion? 
Well, there are a couple aspects to it. One is that they've modularized the JVM itself, the JDK, I should say. The library itself has been modularized, and we will need to accommodate that. So that is going to be significant. Whether people will have to adopt modularity on their own code or not is something that they can make a decision on later. They don't have to decide right away. They don't have to modularize their own code at all, frankly. The difficulty is going to be that all the libraries that are out there that don't yet support modularity are going to have to be supported in some way in, in the Jigsaw project. Now, right now, they have things like unnamed modules and automatic modules, and that's where all the controversy comes from. If you are dealing with code that's already been modularized and you want to know the prescriptions on how to modularize your own code, it may get a little involved, but actually the process is relatively clear and straightforward. That's not really the problem. The problem is, is what about all the libraries that you are hoping to use that have not yet been modularized? And that's where most of the controversy came from. And personally, I think that's where a lot of the lag is going to show up in adoption rates. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see whether people decide to adopt this stuff right away or not. And for that, I'm keeping an eye, as usual, on the open source projects. The Spring Framework is due to release Spring 5 in late September, I believe, and they have been planning for modularity for quite some time. They delayed some of their changes when Java 9 was delayed again. By the way, the modularity stuff goes back m many, many years. The first Jigsaw spec I saw was back in 2007, believe it or not. Wow. It's been 10 years on this. Right. And they finally have enforced it and made it a part of the language. Uh, but again, it, what the interesting part will, will be is whether the adoption happens. The biggest issue that will affect the open source world and your own code is that public and private no longer really mean what they sound like they mean. Uh, private means private for, for real now. You can't even use reflection to access something unless you're in the same module as that particular uh, package. And public also no longer means public because unless a particular package is exported, you still can't see it. And this has widespread ramifications, especially for library developers. And that's what's impacting a lot of the alternative languages and, and the other projects like Spring and Hibernate and so on. And, and the modularity issue um, has kind of uh, overshadowed maybe some of the other features coming in Java 9. One is adding private methods to interfaces. <laughs> what about that yeah. That one kind of, that's an edge case. You know, yeah. it's kind of funny how they added that. Uh, but the basic idea was simply that in Java 8, they allowed you to put static and uh, default methods in interfaces. So now you have methods that have an implementation, and, and they've literally blurred the distinction between an abstract class and an interface. In Java 9, they decided to add private methods, which is really funny. I mean, that's a method that even if your class implements the interface, the instances of the class can't invoke. I mean, it's private. Uh, where, what's it useful for? Well, it's when you have other methods in that same interface that do something in common. Now you can make a private method they can both delegate to. So it really is kind of an edge case. It'll be minor. You know, if, if that was all that was coming, then nobody would have said much about mm -hmm. it. But it, the other thing is, of course, is that it's very easy. You know, there's nothing confusing or complicated about how they did it. Uh, so I think that one would be fine. I, I think, in fact, that's the thing about Java 9 is that you're going to see a lot of these articles that say, hey, it's not just Jigsaw. Uh, you know what? It's just Jigsaw. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, it's not, that's not true. And I added a bunch of recipes to say what was coming. 
but it's really minor compared to the changes that came in Jigsaw. That really is the big feature. And, yeah. and we'll see, you know, in fact, I think that's what's going to drive the decision as to whether to adopt it or not, is whether you are interested in the modularity approach or not. Now, some people feel very strongly about that, that, it, that modularity in Java has been broken from the beginning, and, and this is a required, absolutely necessary change. But of course, any change comes with a cost. You know, these things are never for free. And I'm not, you know, I don't work for Oracle or anything, so I don't have to try to sell you on it. Uh, I just try to use these things and, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether people decide that this massive change is worth it in their own code. Another change that might be characterized as being minor. You mentioned immutables back when, you know, earlier when we were talking about Java 8. But right. in, with Java 9, you'll be able to cre create immutable lists, right? Well, now that is actually an interesting thing. What they've basically done is they put in some factory methods. And when you start playing with the Java 8 API, you notice pretty quickly that they really love the word of, OF, as a factory method. You see that all over the place as a static method that lets you create an object. So there's a, in the date time package, there's local date.of, and there's local time.of, and zone ID.of, and, and we have things like optional.of and of nullable. But there's, there's a whole wide range of them. Now in Java 9, you can do list.of, map.of, and set.of, and create a, a list, map, or set automatically. And of course, as you say, the most interesting thing is that those are unmodifiable list sets or maps so that you can't uh, make changes to it. Now, I really am interested in how people adopt that because you've made something syntactically very easy that people may not realize are, is not modifiable. And we'll see whether people decide they like that or not if they decide later they want to add elements to it, you know? So will people adopt this or not uh, depends on, I think the convenience means that people will certainly experiment with it. They'll certainly use that. And then the first time they try to modify it, try to add an element or something and they can't, they're going to go, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then we'll see if they decide to use it long term or not. Well, Ken, let's move away from Java and talk about Groovy for, for a few minutes. You will be teaching the course Groovy Programming for Java Developers in October. Why is writing with Groovy easier than writing with Java? Can you maybe walk us through an example of this? Well, I, I got to admit, Groovy's kind of been my first love. You know, yeah. that was the language that I really fell in love with back around, oh, 2007, 2008 timeframe. And I spent a lot of time in the Groovy language and in the Groovy ecosystem, you know, working with the Grails framework. Rails two and three, and and working with Gradle as the as the build tool, and Spock as a testing framework, and all of these things. Gro Groovy, of course, speaking of lambdas, has had closures all along. You know, it's it's yeah. had that from the beginning. Now you can say that actually about any of the major non-Java JVM languages. Scala has an analogous thing, and so does, of course, Clojure with the J, the language that's basically Lisp on the JVM, and the new popular language Kotlin also has closures all built in. But Groovy also has the Groovy JDK, which vastly simplifies so much coding inside of Java. It has uh, po Pogos, you know, plain old Groovy objects, which are much, much simpler than writing the corresponding Pojo. And metaprogramming, allowing you to both modify code at 
compile time with AST transformations, abstract syntax tree transformations, as well as runtime transformations as well. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. You know, I, I just, anything I write in Java, I can write in probably about a quarter as many lines of Groovy or less, and it'll be cleaner and easier to read and understand. You know, so I, I've always enjoyed that. The best thing about Groovy from an adoption point of view, though, is that you don't lose anything when you move to Groovy. You simply add. The Groovy is very intuitive and easy for a Java developer to pick up, and you can add it incrementally. You don't have to change any of your existing Java code in order to adopt Groovy. You could simply add a Groovy module, and the Groovy compiler understands how to compile Java. So again, the integration is particularly simple and easy, and it's very easy to add Groovy to an existing Java system and take advantage of all the features that occur there. We should also mention that you're the co-host of the Groovy podcast, and uh, we'll share a link to that. Oh, thank you. What are some of the latest things that you've been discussing on, on that podcast? Well, one of the things that's going on right now, of course, is the move from Groovy 2. They're planning a move to Groovy 3. Now, this is not really going to change your your idioms or how you use the language. What it will do, however, is that it will allow all the Java 8 syntax to be adopted. So Groovy has had closures and things that correspond to method references for years, but they're not the same syntax as Java. And one of the things Groovy's always prided itself on is being able to take virtually any Java class rename it .groovy and have it compile without a problem. This changed with the, the new syntax elements inside of Java 8. And in the Groovy 3 release, which is due later this year, that will all be supported directly in Groovy. Now, I actually did a talk a year ago at Java 1 on Groovy and Java 8 and how easy it is to mix the two and delegate to streams when it becomes helpful and use AST transformations where that's useful. So it's not like we they weren't able to work together before. It's just now the syntax will be cleaner and, and more helpful. Now, while Groovy is an open source project now, it's part of the Apache Software Foundation, it's the other projects where a lot of the innovation is going on, Gradle especially, has has improved by leaps and bounds. Well, let's let's spend a minute on Gradle. What's new there? Well, the team, the core team at Gradle Incorporated has been really focused on performance over the past two years. So whereas the the idea of Gradle has always been a popular one, you know, the ability of getting away from the XML declarations and configuration mechanisms, being able to write your configuration in a language that supports, I mean, for crying out loud, just if statements and loops, you know, make that easier. Well, now the speed improvements have just been stellar. And that's partly with a, a cache that they now have, a build cache. They also have compile time avoidance, you know, the ability to avoid tasks that are no longer needed or, or not need to be need don't need to be re-executed, for example. The difference between in speed between Gradle and Maven these days can be as much as 10 to 100 times faster wow. in terms of Gradle. They have a nice comparison right on Gradle.org, and they've got a whole bunch of new getting started guides. And the open source community adopted Gradle almost right away. The commercial world is rapidly picking up it as well with companies as big as, say, Netflix and LinkedIn and others doing hundreds of uh, thousands of Gradle builds a, a day, uh, all on a routine basis. And a few months back, I think, right, uh, an Android Gradle plugin was released. And, and I know you have a book on Gradle recipes for Android. That's true. Now, in that case, what happened was is that Google at Google I.O. back in 2013 decided that they needed an actual build tool because up until then, all Android applications 
we're basically done with what we would now call an IDE build. You know, you built inside the Eclipse plugin, the Android Developer Tools mechanism. And in Google I.O. in 2013, they announced the shift to Android Studio, which is an IntelliJ derivative, you know, a free version of IntelliJ, and the adoption of Gradle as the only supported build tool for Android applications. So this, of course, was a big surprise to the Android people who are not terribly familiar with Gradle. And that is what gave us the opportunity to put together the Gradle Recipes for Android book, which was released approximately a year ago. Uh, so that largely talked about all sorts of ways you might use Gradle specifically for Android-related applications. But of course, we had basic information on, on ways to improve the performance and the customization and other mechanisms in Gradle itself. We also mentioned at the outset that you've done a series of video courses on Grails 3. And just about a month or so ago, there was a the release of Grails 3.3. What are some of the new features that have that have come out with that release? Well, the thing about Grails, and this is the issue I think they're facing right now, is largely a branding one. Is that people, you know, when Grails first came out, it was considered a traditional Spring Hibernate type of Java web application framework. You know, it was a framework for building those quickly and easily. And while that's a good thing, you know, that really was very helpful at the time, these days, the move to microservices, the move to uh, cloud-based providers and things like that has changed the motivation for a lot of development that used to be largely web application-based. Well, the funny part is, is that Grails 3 adopted that very quickly. It's based on Spring Boot, you know, which is definitely the most popular web-based framework in the Java ecosystem right now. And Grails 3 already uses that. It's built right on top. So anything that's using Spring Boot could adopt Grails 3 without too much trouble at all. And yet people haven't necessarily gotten that message. They don't quite realize that you can use everything you've learned from Spring Boot right in a Grails application now. And I'm hoping that will change over time, you know, that as the word gets out that this isn't your, well, I guess I don't want to say your father's, your mother's, your father's, your ancestors, you know, web framework, you know, from before. Uh, it has all these extra capabilities now that that will make it more popular again. I, I still find it a very powerful way. And if all you want is to build a RESTful web service, they have something called a profile where you just say dash dash profile REST API, and you get all the REST capabilities of GORM and Grails and everything with, with uh, all the Spring Boot capabilities like an executable jar and the testing mechanisms and the easy deployment as a into cloud providers and everything without uh, having to change anything, without any of the view layer stuff or any of the other problems. Plus, it's got all the, the JSON slurper and, and other natural mechanisms that come from the Groovy ecosystem as well. Well, and since you just mentioned Spring Boot, why don't we do a, a quick preview of your upcoming training course on getting started with Spring and Spring Boot. Um, Ken, what can a developer add to his or her toolkit by learning how to program in Spring and Spring Boot? Well, Spring is probably one of the two or three most popular open source projects in the entire Java ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's basically a mechanism to provide the plumbing for an application. It allows you to provide so-called declarative services for simple POJOs. You know, you can do security and transactions and persistence, especially when combined with a tool like Hibernate, very simply and easily by delegating to Spring, just telling Spring what you want, and it's able to provide it on demand. Now, Spring has been around for many, many years, and the current iteration of the course that we have on Spring and Spring Boot uses Spring 
version four and the spring boot version 1.x whatever the latest version of the the one stream is now in september uh probably at the end of the month they're coming out with spring five and spring boot two now spring boot by the way doesn't really fundamentally change spring it's basically a way of rapidly developing an application given the capabilities you want in spring as well as providing some monitoring and and other mechanisms under the hood so you use spring boot to get started but it's still basically a spring app you know just like it was before and that's all that's all pretty much the same as it was before uh, what spring 5 and spring boot 2 is going to add a couple things. First of all, that'll be the first version of Spring that requires you to, to use Java 8 so that they'll be able to support the lambdas and method references, all the stuff we talked about earlier. And they also are bringing in these so-called reactive streams. They have mechanisms in the Spring web framework to allow you to deal with the reactive stream specification and and use implementations under the hood that use a, uh, the Flux and Mono and all those other uh, interfaces that were that are in fact supported in Java 9 as well. Well, Ken, I think we've covered a lot, and uh, it's been great talking to you. If our listeners want to find out more about you or what you're working on, where should they go? Well, um, I have kind of a minimal website. I mean, I've got it's out there. I just don't do much with it. That's the www.cousinit.com. It's k-o-u-s-e-n-i-t.com. So I say cousin it, but my wife says cousin it, like the Adams family. <laughs> <laughs> it was her idea. Uh, so that's there. I also, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Ken Cousin, K-E-N, and then K-O-U-S-E-N. So I, I don't tweet a lot, but I do retweet a fair amount, especially technical things and, and interesting things going on in the community as much as possible. Uh, so I'm on various other social media sites. I, I'm not very difficult to Google. I, I do have a fairly good presence there. I'm basically a one-person company. And I am spending a lot of time. My, my regular day job is I teach software development training classes. So the fact that I'm now spending as much time invested in Safari as possible is uh, is a good thing for me. You know, I really enjoy the platform and I'm taking advantage of it as much as possible, both uh, as a user and also to teach there and, and have books there and videos and prepare some of those Orioles and everything as much as possible on on safari yeah and pretty much you know don't skip a day in september or october or else you'll miss one of ken's courses because you've got a ton of them coming up over the next couple of months well ken cousin it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you and thank you very much for joining us oh well thank you very much i appreciate it and thank you very much for listening once again our guest ken cousin is presenting the live online training course functional programming in java 8 on september 11th and 12th and again on october 2nd and 3rd and the course Getting Started with Spring and Spring Boot on September 21st and 22nd and October 18th and 19th. You can get more details and register for these courses on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. We'll have links for those courses in the show notes that accompany this episode, as well as links to Ken's other videos and books, including the newly released book, Modern Java Recipes. If you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher. That way you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.